The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, the chapter 2 and the verse number 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that simple but very short sentence reminds us and informs us and demands of us that we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace and grace alone. In other words, we cannot add to it anything of our own works or merit. And any change that comes in our heart as a result of God's power is as a result of God's power. It's not by a working of our own doing or by our own strength. And the Bible is filled with testimonies to the truthfulness of that verse, that by the grace of God, we are saved. We think of the example of the Apostle Paul on his road to Damascus, and suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ was there in front of him in the form of a bright light, and he was dramatically changed and transformed by the grace of God. We think together in the Old Testament about even Abraham, a man who worshipped false gods and false idols, and yet the Lord appeared to him and dramatically changed his heart, so much so that he became the father of the faithful, that he was willing to leave where he was and to go to a place where he did not know. We think even down through the years of history, we think of uh, John Newton, that hymn that we sang, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, was penned by him. And he was that rough captain of a seal, uh, slave vessel. And he used to carry slaves across the Atlantic Ocean. And then God saved him. And then he was able to pen those words that saved a wretch like me. It is the grace of God and only the grace of God that makes a dramatic difference. It is only the grace of God that can transform the heart of man and can make him into a new creature. It is only through the grace of God that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature and that the old things pass away and behold, all things become new. It is by grace and grace alone. And one of the testimonies of God's transforming power of grace is the conversion of the dying thief on the cross. We've read the account there in Luke chapter 23. It says in the verse number 32, and there were also two other malefactors, two other criminals or two other convicts led with him to be put to death. One was crucified on his left-hand side and the other was crucified on his right-hand side. And we see here, even in the very final moments of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is reaching people with the gospel. He is transforming people by the grace of God, and he provides to us a wonderful example, even here on the cross, of what he was purchasing for sinners. He was purchasing for us the gospel of grace, and that you and I could be saved by grace. I want to consider with you today this story of grace, the conversion of the dying thief. And there's four very simple things that I want to draw out from this passage of Scripture The first thing we're going to see is the repentance of the dying thief. Then secondly, the realization of the dying thief. And then thirdly, the request of the dying thief. And then fourthly, the refutation by the dying thief. Notice with me, first of all here, in the verse number 39 to 40, notice the repentance of the dying thief. It says there in the verse number 39, and one of the malefactors, which were hanged, reeled on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now, what's strange about this is that whenever it goes on to say there in the verse number 40, but the other answering him rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God, seeing that we are in the same condemnation as him? 
Now, what was different about this and what was peculiar about this was that the dying thief in the other gospel has been recorded for us that he also mocked. We even have in this gospel here in uh, verse number 35, and the people stood beholding and the rulers also with them derided him. He saved others that him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. He was mocked again in verse number 36, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Then the verse number 37, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And then he was mocked as well with the superscription, this is the king of the Jews. And both of these malefactors were actually mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but something happened. Something happened. Read it in actually Matthew's gospel, the chapter 27 and the verse number 44. It says, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, the verse number 44, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, the thieves, plural, cast the same in his teeth. Now, what made the change? There's no contradiction between Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. There is only just a timeline, a difference in the timeline. And what made the Gospel, or what made the difference in this man's life that took him from a man who was mocking God to now being a man who is rebuking the other thief for mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost hypocritical. It's almost a double standard here, except we understand what has happened. And what has happened is this. The grace of God has changed his life. The grace of God has transformed him. The grace of God from the time of his first mocking until this time now, where he is now rebuking the other thief on the cross, the grace of God has changed him. It's made him a new creature. It's given him a new heart. And it has happened dramatically. It has happened instantaneously. It's just like Paul on the way to Damascus. It's just like Nebuchadnezzar looking up to the heavens and seeing who God is. God has changed his heart. You see, wherever there is a love for God, wherever there is a desire to honor Christ, it is coming from a heart that has been made anew by grace. And this man that day on the cross, as he looked upon the dying Savior, was changed, dramatically changed and transformed. And we see his repentance now where he goes from a man who mocks Christ to now going to a man to defend for Jesus Christ. He repented of that sin. But notice with me, secondly, the realization of the dying thief. The realization of the dying thief. In verse number 40, down to the verse number 2, we see two things that this dying thief realized. First of all, in verse number 30, but the other answering rebuked him. That's the, the thief now transformed by grace, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? He had a sense of the fear of God come upon his heart. This man had lived a life without the fear of God. In many ways, we could understand him as a, a career criminal. Perhaps even he was a murderer because he was being crucified on the cross. He, he wasn't here just because he had uh, said something wrong or, or even had committed a, a lesser crime. He was here because he had done something extremely wicked, worthy of death. This was a man that had lived the life without the fear of God. This was a man who was known as a criminal throughout of his life, and he had done such wicked things, and now there's a fear of God in his heart. And that is a proof of the change of God. 
We see in Romans chapter 3 in the verse number 18. Romans chapter 3 in the verse number 18, if you turn with me there. It says in that portion of God's word, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Talking here about the unconverted. Talking to those who are still in their sin. There's no fear of God. Why is it that they continue on in their sin? Why is it that they continue on with their blasphemy of Christ? Why is it they continue on with their mocking of Christ? It's because there's no fear of God. And I wonder today, my friend, have you been living a life? A life where there is no fear of God. Whatever pleasure you want, you take and you enjoy. Whatever sin you desire to do, you do it. And there's no, as it is, no, no question in your conscience, no trouble in your mind, no thought that someday you'll stand before God. I wonder today, do you have a fear of God? Do you have a fear of the judgment of God that is coming? This man had a heart that was changed by grace and he had a fear of God. He had a fear of God that had come upon him. But he also had a sense of his own guilt. Notice in verse number 41, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards for our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Now, this man is probably the exception whenever it comes to people who are put to death or people who are put in prison or things like that. He actually admitted his own guilt. He actually admitted that what he was receiving was the just reward for his crime. As they say, everybody is innocent in prison. But this man, he's, he's open and he's honest. He's saying, listen, I, I, I justly received today the, the punishment for what I have done in this life. But this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he has done nothing amiss. Nothing amiss. You see the change there in the heart of man. You see there the grace of God touching his life where there was a sense of his guilt. There was a sense that he had broken God's law. There was a sense that he deserved to be punished. But there was also the sense as well that Jesus Christ was the sinless one. And he wasn't just saying this in a sense that Jesus Christ hadn't done anything worthy to be put to death. I believe he was speaking more here. I believe he's speaking here about the testimony of the life of Christ. This man has done nothing amiss. There's nothing in this man worthy of death. And he understood when he was on that cross that Jesus Christ was sinless. He understood that Jesus Christ had done no sin. But he understood, I believe, that Jesus Christ was hanging on that cross not for his own sin, but for the sins of others. The Lord Jesus Christ was on that cross not for his own iniquity, but the Lord was laying on him the iniquity of us all. Notice he says there as well, we indeed justly for we receive the reward of our deeds, but this man, notice how he compares himself to God's standard. He doesn't say, well, you know, I don't think I should be getting punished this way. Okay, maybe I've done this bad thing, but really I was a good person throughout my life. No, he compares himself to the standard of God. And he says, in light of this man's testimony, in light of this man's character, in light of who this man is and what this man has done and how he has lived, he is sinless and I am guilty. Oh, my friend, how often we try to cover our sin. How often we try to make excuses for the heinous and wicked nature of our sin. And we try to cover it and say, well, it wasn't as bad as so-and-so. Or it wasn't as bad as doing this or that. 
for it wasn't the worst sin that I could have committed. And yet, my friend, when the grace of God touches your heart and God begins to open your eyes, my friend, you realize that you're guilty. You realize in light of the standard of God, which is perfection and sinlessness, that you have a great mountain of sin that needs to be dealt with. Do you realize today, my friend, how guilty you are before a holy God? Do you realize today, my friend, you have that sense and acknowledgement coming over you that as you stand before God and on judgment day and he outpours his wrath upon sinners, that God will be just. The Bible says again in Romans chapter 3, it says that in that day when all the world stands before God, that every mouth shall be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Now, why is it that every mouth will be stopped? It's because everybody will know that they're guilty. It's not just that God will close their mouths and prevent them from speaking, but everyone will have to say that I am guilty. Every charge laid against me and the judgment that I now face and that now awaits me in eternity is worthy. It is the due reward for my life of sin. Well, my friend, I pray today that you would realize and have that sense of the fear of God. Have that sense of your own guilt of sin coming upon you. But notice with me thirdly as well, notice the request of the dying thief. The request of the dying thief. In verse number 42, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Lord, remember me. Throughout scripture as well, there's various prayers that are prayed, asking the Lord for forgiveness. We think of the psalmist who prayed, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. We think of the publican in the temple in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. This perhaps is the shortest prayer for salvation in all of scripture. This is perhaps the shortest cry unto Christ or unto God for mercy that there is in the whole pages of the Bible. He simply says, remember me. Remember me. I believe that this request showed, first of all, an evidence of faith in the person of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was dying on the cross next to him, but this man believed that he was going to live even after he had died. This man believed that Jesus Christ would be alive even after this, and he would be alive in such a way that he would have power and authority to remember him. It's a bit like Joseph, who was in the prison, and he said, whenever the butler went back up into Pharaoh's house, he said, just remember me. Just remember me. Don't, don't forget about me being here. Because he knew that that man now had an audience with the king. He knew that that man was going right back into the very presence of the, the supreme authority of the land. And I believe this man knew when he said, remember me, he knew that Christ was going to the Father. He knew that Christ was going to be in the presence of God. And he wanted this man to remember him. This, in many ways, is an imperfect request. It doesn't contain a great declaration of faith. It doesn't or contain a great description of uh, 
different orthodox doctrines or so on. It's very, very simple. It's very, very primitive in a way. But it is nonetheless an evidence of faith in the person of Christ. Lord, remember me. Lord, save me. Lord, as you will be alive in the presence of God after you have spent your time on the cross, remember me as well when you're up in there in the glory. That's also an expression of his desire. This request expressed his desire as well because he says, when thou comest into thy kingdom. And I believe what he was requesting of Christ was this, that he wanted to be in that kingdom. He wanted to be a part of that kingdom. He wanted to be brought into that kingdom. He, he knew that where he was going was not good. He knew where he was going, there would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He knew that because of his sin and his guilt and because of the sinful life that he had lived and because of the death that was very closely coming upon him, that he was going to that place, that awful place called hell. But he expresses this desire, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And in many ways you could say, saying, Lord, take me with you. Bring me with you into that kingdom. We wanted to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. Notice, notice the response that the Lord Jesus Christ had to this. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You think of that man hearing those words. There he's in the greatest agony of his life. There he's in the fi very final moments of living in this world and he's about to drop off into hell in his mind and he's, drop, he's about to drop off into judgment. And the Savior looks at him and says, today, when you die, you're going to be with me and I'm going to be and you will be with me in paradise, in my kingdom. What a promise. What a relief. What, what probably just sense of joy, perhaps even tears swept over this man when he thought, I'm going to be with Christ. Yes, I'm dying. Yes, my life is about to leave me, but I'm saved. I'm saved. Yes, it's the 11th hour. Yes, things are very swiftly passing away, but I've, but I've got into the kingdom. I'm just in the kingdom. You think about this. This man lived a wicked life. No good works to offer if he had any. No church membership. No baptism class. That faith part. And yet he. Why is it that he reason say at this moment the reason he that he doesn't have is because the Lord Christ said so. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ today you should be with paradise. Uh, my friend, it's a scene and for me. It's a gospel of it is a gospel of and gospel that's kind. Out my price, it is possible to me empty handed. 
of God, then Christ is the only reason any ever been is because Christ has lost and said, with me. Your good works because of not today, not today, how many times today, because I said so, because you are mine, me from all of his. Oh, my friend, this is the story, this is the gospel of grace. I pray that you would realize that. I pray that you would come to the Lord Jesus Christ today and say with a hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I pray that you would say that. Because my friend, if you come with anything in your hand of any merit or anything, any work and all the prayer remember me and Christ empowered it was immediate with Christ today and notice what would truly make it paradise is the fact that he would be with Christ that he would be with him oh friend may we not just think that heaven is sitting on clouds floating around playing harps maybe may we see may we understand that the joy of heaven is being with Christ and the worship of him that we shall enjoy. But notice finally and very briefly, the refutation by the dying thief. The refutation by the dying thief. This testimony, this story of grace refutes some ideas that people have today. It refutes the ideal of sacramentalism. The idea that somehow that through the sacraments that we are saved or converted. Rome teaches this. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you need to be baptized. You need to receive the sacraments and so on. That's why it's a very terrifying thing whenever a child dies in infancy or a child is dying in infancy. Oftentimes there's great hurry uh, for the priest to come and baptize the child before they die. This refutes that. Yes, baptism is a command of Christ. Yes, baptism is a means of grace. Yes, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace where we partake of the benefits of the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friend, it does not save. It doesn't remove our sin. And this man's testimony refutes that idea. This man's in heaven having never been baptized. This man is in heaven having never partook of the Lord's Supper. Never, never took. And yet he's there. He's in glory. Well, my friend, you could be there too. If you would simply say, Lord, remember me. But also it refutes the idea of purgatory. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not after you've spent a certain amount of years or decades or centuries in purgatory that holding place, that waiting place, that place where you pay for the rest of your sin? No, he said today. You see, my friend, the efficacy of the atonement of Jesus Christ is able to forgive us of all of our sin. It is able to completely justify us 
in the sight of God, just as if we never had sinned, to declare us as legally forgiven in his sight. And my friend, there's no other work that you have to do. When you die, my friend, it'll either be one of two places. You'll either go to God's hell or you'll either go to God's heaven. You'll either go to be with one thief or you'll go to be with the redeemed thief. Where will it be? Where will it be, my friend? It also refutes the idea of universalism. Those who say that everybody will be saved, don't worry about how they lived or how they died. Don't worry about the faith they had in Christ because God is love and God will save everybody. Notice the account of the record here that this thief was changed by grace. This thief cried out, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And the Lord said to this thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. But he said nothing about the other thief. Nothing about the other thief. See, my friend, there's just simply two roads before you lie. One upward into heaven or one downward into hell. My friend, don't think to yourself that somehow because of who you are, what you are, what you've done, that somehow that you will just make it in. That somehow that God will just let you in. That somehow you'll just get a free pass. That somehow that God will just brush your sin under the carpet and you will enter in. No, my friend, God will judge. And accept you're in Christ. And accept you have trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Or you'll be lost forever. But notice as well, it also refutes the idea of soul sleep. Soul sleep. There are those who say that once you die, that your soul will go to sleep. That you won't go to be in heaven or hell. You'll simply cease to be. And yet notice what it says here. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That is conscious fellowship with Christ. That is conscious fellowship with Christ. That is being with Christ, communing with Christ, worshiping Christ, and enjoying Christ. That's not being asleep. And oh, my friend, I pray. I pray that you would see today how this man was converted and saved by the grace of God. Notice what John Gill said. He said, Jesus immediately answered him, though he said not one word to the other, that railed at him or to the multitude that abused him and promised him more than he asked for and sooner than he expected. My friend, today, if you would call out to God in faith and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from your sense of guilt, my friend, Christ, he will do more than what you've asked him for and he will do it sooner than what you've expected. The Lord Jesus Christ can save you. The Lord Jesus Christ can redeem you. Will you come to him today? Will you trust in him through faith? Will you say, depending entirely in grace, Lord, remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. We're going to sing one final hymn together. It is the hymn number 332 in our hymn books. 332. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee, 
O Lamb of God, I come. Think of the words, especially of verse number five. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Wilt welcome, pardon, claims, relieve. Because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. My friend, will you come to Christ today? As the thief called out, remember me. Will you call unto God for salvation? And even use this, this hymn as your prayer. Lord, I come. O Lamb of God, I come. 332. And we will stand to sing this together as introduction is being played. 332. prayer and we'll seek the Lord together and then the meeting will be handed over to our brother Alan Samuel. Our gracious and eternal God, we pray for all those that would have listened in in Cloverdale and Sermon Audio on Zoom. I pray Father in heaven that you would have used the word to challenge and speak to them. We thank you O Lord that you will welcome, pardon, cleanse those who come to you we thank you, O Lord, that the Lamb of God is able to take away the sins of the world. We thank you, O Lord, that on that day upon the cross, there with one of the outcasts of society, one of the lowest of the lows, you displayed your redeeming grace. 
Father, I pray, O oh God, that you would touch the heart of some dear soul today. Draw them lovingly and tenderly to yourself, that they would trust in thee. And Lord, I pray, O oh God, that none would leave, none would tune out without knowing Christ as their Savior. Lord, bless the congregation there in Cloverdale. Bless the fellowship that they'll now have together. And Lord, I pray that the blessing of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would rest and remain upon each one. Until in thy good providence we shall meet again. For Christ's glory we ask these things. Amen and amen. Thank you.